On the night of 8 November 2016, uh, as we assembled in the jock, you could, you could uh, up at uh, Fort Meade, you could actually look at the, uh, the big screens and uh, most of the coverage was actually on the, uh, the election. Uh, what we were focused uh, like a laser on though was uh, an operation that uh, we were getting ready to kick off and it, it would actually be the largest offensive cyberspace operation that the United States had conducted uh, to date. The adversary is uh, operating with uh, cyberspace capabilities, uh, they're operating with electronic warfare uh, capabilities, they're operating uh, in the, uh, the, inf the greater information environment, uh, and it's, uh, uh, frankly, uh, they are very, very persistent, and they have been very, very uh, effective as they've done that. So we, we really have uh, no other option uh, but to do the same thing. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and for this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi had the chance to speak to Lieutenant General Stephen Fogarty. He is currently the commander of U.S. Army Cyber Command. Now, in a lot of ways, it is remarkably difficult to conceptualize the cyber domain and to understand fully what operations in that domain will look like. But although it's difficult, we can't, of course, just wait for those things to be figured out. We can't afford not to be operating in the cyber domain right now. And Army Cyber is. General Fogarty talks about what they're doing, and he offers a really useful big-picture understanding of cyber that includes everything from offensive and defensive cyber operations to electronic warfare and information warfare. The discussion even explores some of the very unique challenges to recruitment and retention in a part of the force that is a little different, that's optimized for the cyber domain. I think listeners will get a lot out of the conversation. Before we get to it, though, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're new to the MWI podcast, make sure you find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we would love it if you could take just a second and give us a rating or leave a review. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Major Jake Moraldi and Lieutenant General Stephen Fogarty. Uh, so, General Fogarty, thank you for sitting down and talking to us today. Um, Pleasure to be here. I, I want to start off for folks who maybe aren't familiar with what Army Cyber does, just sort of what the mission is of the Army Cyber Command. So, so my, my mission, or the command's mission, is to uh, integrate and conduct uh, full-spectrum uh, cyberspace operations, electronic warfare, and information operations. And the intent is to provide our commander's uh, decision advantage while denying the same uh, to the adversary. Given that mission, how does Army Cyber understand its mandate to defend forward and sort of influence the larger battle space through cyber operations? So uh, that's a very good question. I think, uh, first of all, you have to start with this idea that uh, what we're uh, attempting uh, to do is uh, uh, enable our commanders to visualize themselves and visualize the adversary, which sounds easy, but we find is uh, extraordinarily uh, challenging. And we, we actually have a uh, an easier time of visualizing the adversary than we uh, than we do uh, ourselves. 
So as we look at uh, this idea of persistent engagement, uh, you know, defending forward, which is uh, the vision and the strategy for uh, United States uh, Cyber Command, uh, what we're what we're really attempting to do, and what the strategy uh, is really intended to convey, is this idea that we we must uh, use the entire operational depth of the, of the domain, of the cyber domain and the information uh, environment. So it's this idea that uh, we have to conduct operations in red space, uh, gray space, and blue space uh, simultaneously. If you uh, cede uh, any of those areas to an adversary, then uh, you give them freedom of movement. They can maneuver to a position uh, of relative advantage, and then they have a tendency to, uh, to pound you. Uh, so uh, what we want to ensure is that um, we, uh, we understand uh, where the enemy is operating, we understand where he intends to operate, uh, and then uh, you know, we're, we're there uh, in all those, uh, those areas. Uh, uh, now, uh, we're, not, we're not the sole players in this space. The United States is not the sole player uh, in cyberspace either. So within the government, you know, we work very closely uh, to enable uh, our partners, uh, whether it be the FBI, CIA, uh, you know, NSA, uh, Department of Homeland uh, Security. Uh, so that becomes very important. And our foreign partners, uh, we, must, uh, we must enable them so that they can take uh, action. So I, th I think uh, uh, what's very important to us uh, as we operate, and you know, Army Cyber Command is very active. You know, forty-nine percent of all missions that were conducted by Cyber Command last year were conducted by uh, by Army Cyber. And I think that gives you an idea for uh, uh, for what our operational uh, tempo is. So we've gone well beyond kind of the build phase, and uh, we've been operating uh, for uh, for many years now. And what we find is that. Uh, uh, when I look at full-spectrum cyberspace operations, you know, we break that to operate uh, the networks. It is to uh, conduct uh, defensive cyberspace operations mm -hmm. and conduct uh, offensive cyberspace operations. We have to do that simultaneously across uh, all domains uh, and across uh, all environments. So I find it interesting when you're talking about Army Cyber's mandate. There's kind of two buckets that you described, which is sort of a, a domain bucket, a, a technical bucket, and then a partnership bucket. And I'll take each of those in kind. And I'm curious about, you've talked previously about a shift to information warfare and that cyber is a component of that. Can you elaborate a little bit what you what you mean by information warfare yeah. and cyber's job in it? So on the night of 8 November 2016, you know, most of the country was worried about the, uh, the national elections. And and so for the United States Cybercom staff and many of the service uh, cyber components, uh, we were worried that evening also, but it was really for a different uh, reason. Uh, as we assembled in the jock, you could, you could uh, up at uh, Fort Meade, you could actually look at the, uh, the big screens and uh, most of the coverage was actually on the, uh, the election. Uh, what we were focused uh, like a laser on though was uh, an operation that uh, we were getting ready to kick off and it, it would actually be the largest offensive cyberspace operation that the United States had conducted uh, to date. And it was Operation uh, Glowing Symphony. 
and it was an operation to, uh, to actually take down uh, infrastructure, uh, cyber infrastructure uh, for, uh, for ISIS. And so the, the principal action arm was uh, Joint Task Force Ares, and we were working with, uh, with our partners. And uh, we uh, commenced the operation. I was sitting actually in the jock uh, watching this occur, and it was uh, very similar to uh, you know, conventional uh, operation that you would find. So you know, uh, information's coming in, there's an execution checklist, uh, we're keeping uh, our higher headquarters and, uh, and our partners informed as we were uh, progressing uh, through the, uh, the evening. And within a few hours, uh, we had actually uh, uh, conducted the operation. Uh, we had uh, very good results, uh, the results that we, uh, we anticipated. And, uh, and I can remember everyone's kind of giving each other a high five, kind of a fist bump, and with a lot of excitement that uh, you know, we had just struck back at, uh, at ISIS. And what we didn't realize, though, as the election was playing out on the screens that were, had really kind of faded into the, uh, the background, is that uh, we had conducted, we, had, we were uh, you know, a nation state that had conducted uh, this very successful operation. It had taken us months to uh, coordinate. Uh, against a, uh, a non-state actor and what we didn't realize at that time, uh, certainly didn't appreciate, is that uh, that was a culmination point for us that night, but it was also a culmination point for a state adversary uh, who had conducted, uh, frankly, uh, uh, a campaign against the, uh, the heartland uh, of the United States. And so when you juxtapose uh, you, the United States conducting an operation that took months to coordinate because of all of our processes uh, against uh, a non-state you know, insurgent uh, actor. And you compare that to uh, the operations that, in this case, Russia had conducted for months uh, against the, uh, the United States. Uh, in hindsight, uh, that really became the call to arms uh, to evolve from you know, operations in just the cyber domain to, uh, to information uh, warfare operations. So, so that, that's the environment that we find ourselves in uh, today. It's this idea that the adversary you know, doesn't limit themselves to conducting operations just in the, uh, the cyber domain. Uh, what we've seen the Russians uh, and the PRC, uh, and these are just two exemplars, many other uh, smaller nation-state actors uh, and non-nation-state actors uh, have learned that, first of all, the, uh, the barriers to entry are very low. You don't have to have a nuclear weapon. You just have to have uh, access uh, to the Internet to be able to get your, uh, your message. Uh, and it can become uh, you know, very, very compelling uh, to, uh, to certain audiences. So uh, uh, what, what we find ourselves uh, facing is this idea that uh, the adversary is uh, operating with uh, cyberspace capabilities, uh, they're operating with electronic warfare uh, capabilities, they're operating uh, in the, uh, the, inf the greater information environment, uh, and it's, uh, uh, frankly, uh, they are very, very persistent, and they have been very, very uh, effective as they've done that. So we, we really have uh, no other option uh, but to do the same thing. 
So if you think about where we were you know, uh, almost 10 years ago when General Alexander established uh, United States Cyber Command, and then all the services you know, established their, uh, their cyber components, you know, the focus was getting a cyber capability up. And frankly, the focus was on offensive capability. What we found pretty quickly is uh, the defense is, uh, is pretty important. It actually gives you uh, the ability to, uh, to act offensively. So, uh, so that was, I think, uh, uh, something that was, that, that was very important. That took a couple years, frankly, to, uh, to realize. Uh, and then as uh, we started to build the force and we started to operate, at least what the Army's experience was, as we looked at the adversary, is that uh, they weren't limiting themselves just to the cyber domain. Uh, and so we actually had to, uh, to expand our remit uh, to, uh, to get after them in that space. Now, uh, you know, as I talked about in my mission, I have three principal buckets that I'm responsible for, full-spectrum cyberspace operations, uh, electronic warfare, and information operations. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at that, and we bundle that with, uh, uh, you know, MISO, uh, MILDAC, uh, you know, PSYOPs, you know, et cetera. We, we think what that really means is information uh, warfare. So that becomes full spectrum uh, information warfare. And we think that's what actually allows uh, our commanders to, uh, to enjoy, you know, decision advantage. Uh, if, if you've, uh, and I think you guys, uh, Modern War Institute, Y'all have had recent interviews with Sean McFate, mm -hmm. and he has this idea of, uh, you know, the world is frankly evolved to this the state of durable disorder. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually find that a very compelling uh, argument. And, and we can't self-limit. So uh, if you look at Army cyber, if you limit yourself to cyber domain, then you've seeded it. Uh, you know, all these other areas to an adversary who has uh, kind of figured out where our gaps and seams are, and, uh, and they're, not, they're not constrained uh, uh, by that. So we have recently evolved to this idea of information warfare because, uh, frankly, that's, that's what's required. Now, uh, our operating principle is we have to be able to sense, uh, understand, decide, act, uh, and assess faster than our adversaries, and frankly, whoever can, whoever can sense, understand, decide, act, and assess faster than the other side, they enjoy a decisive advantage. And so that can't be limited just to the cyber domain. We think it has to be expanded to the information environment. And frankly, it has to be uh, across uh, all all domains. So we go back to this idea, and this is why this is so hard. Is yeah, we have fought. Uh, on land and sea you know, for thousands of years, in the air for about 100 years, in space uh, for about 50 years. And although we've been active uh, in the cyber domain uh, for many years, you know, the, the U.S. military has really gotten their hands, you know, we formally established a structure about, uh, about 10 years old. So frankly, we just don't have the reps that uh, your, kind of your conventional actions in the other domains have. And as you know, Jerome McChrystal really emphasizes, you, you can only uh, move at, at the speed of trust. And so there was this idea very early on as we operated that you know, these guys are going to break the Internet. And uh, it was a lot of discussion about deterrence. 
And what we've realized is we withheld capabilities during that time. Uh, the adversary certainly didn't. Uh, they understood, just as McFake did, this idea of durable disorder. So you're behind, you're between this, this state of peace and this state of kind of you know, conventional warfare. And that's where they've been very, very adept at, uh, at operating. So it's you know, below that level of armed conflict. So that's, that's our space. But we have to be prepared, uh, just like you know, any, uh, any armed force, is to scale from you know, competition to, uh, to conflict. Uh, and in some cases, we have to be able to operate uh, globally, uh, uh, simultaneously in a state of peace, a state of conflict, and somewhere in between. And I think that's the hardest thing our commanders face. Awesome. Yeah, that, I think that's fascinating talking about how cyber in particular, and, and it's true of most army forces, but cyber in a way that is less applicable to, say, a conventional army formation operating across the entire spectrum from peace to war. Um, so I find, I find that an interesting problem set that you guys have to deal with. Uh, the other bucket that you talked about when we were discussing the mission is sort of that partnership element where obviously Army Cyber is not outfitted in a way uh, that it can do everything it needs to do on its own. Um, there's obviously interagency partners, there's the foreign partners you mentioned. Can you sort of describe what that interaction looks like and, and how Army Cyber works with those other entities uh, to accomplish its mission? Yeah, and I'll, I'll start with Army Cyber. So we have uh, uniform military, both active and reserve component. Uh, so both Army National Guard and Army Reserve. Uh, we have uh, DOD civilians, and then uh, we have contractors. And I cannot do my mission without the appropriate mix of all three of those. So then you move out uh, another ring, and then I have to work with uh, United States Cyber Command. Uh, I have to work with uh, the National Security Agency, who is our greatest enabler, our greatest mission partner. Within the Army, I have uh, my greatest enabler, my greatest mission partner is uh, the Intelligence and Security Command. They provide much of the intel. Uh, frankly, much of our DNA uh, comes from the, uh, the intel force, particularly the, the SIGINT force. Uh, uh, the Signal Corps is a critical partner. Uh, all of our great, uh, our great uh, fire supporters and then as I kind of move from cyber into the information environment, then it's uh, you know, psychological operations, you know, information operations, uh, our public affairs professionals. And then you know, we can't just operate at the strategic level. You know, I have the, the, the remit to go all the way down to the tactical level. So that becomes uh, very important. So there, there's multiple partnerships even within, uh, within those levels. Now, if you look at where we're moving, uh, our headquarters to is down to Fort Gordon, Georgia, you know, home of the Signal Corps, the Cyber Center of Excellence, and uh, very importantly for us is you know, our headquarters is actually attached to NSA Georgia, which is where our Joint Force uh, headquarters uh, is located uh, today, you know, embedded within uh, NSA Georgia. We take a circle you know, outside of DOD. And then uh, you run in immediately to DHS, uh, FBI, you know, CIA, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. Uh, and uh, through our reserve and guard, we have uh, 
frankly, you know, contact with states. Uh, that becomes uh, very important. And then there's another circle uh, with uh, academia uh, who are very important partners. There's another circle with industry partners who have capabilities that I'm very happy to just contract from, from them. Uh, and then there's another circle which is uh, our foreign partners. And so th this, is, this is where we live. We have to be very comfortable. So you can have a team leader that could potentially have forces that are enabling a foreign partner uh, forward. Uh, they could have uh, elements of their team that are on uh, army networks conducting uh, operations. And this is either defensively or offensively. And you know, the intel could come from the CIA or from NSA. It could be a walk-in source to, uh, to the FBI. Mm -hmm. So you know, our leaders have to be uh, adept at, at, at operating across uh, you know, all of those, uh, those areas that, uh, that I talked about. And when they look over their, their workforce, you can have a contractor, you can have a uniformed uh, military memory, you can have a, a DOD civilian, and it should be completely transparent uh, to the, uh, the mission. So for us, uh, like in every other domain, every other operation, you know, leader, leadership is, uh, is absolutely critical to our success. So that brings up an interesting point. Obviously, the cyber domain has specific technical challenges and requires professionals in the cyber space. Um, it's been said that there isn't necessarily a problem recruiting talent to come into, uh, you know, U U.S. Army cyber or you know DoD cyber in general. Um, it's doing the retention piece and training. Can you sort of talk to? that process of recruiting and training and retaining, um, you know, the special skill sets that we require within the cyber domain. So, so the good news is we're, I think we're the most popular branch right now uh, across the, uh, the Army. We, ha we have a, a high level of interest in, in you know, applicants, recruits uh, coming into uh, cyber. Uh, so the, our ability to assess uh, those applicants uh, becomes uh, you know, key to uh, to our success. If you look at West Point, you know, there's this very uh, deliberate process. Uh, uh, you know, cadets come in, they're assessed. Uh, they can be brought into a cyber leader development program. Uh, very early on, uh, they'll get a security clearance. Uh, they'll start training with you know, the National Security Agency or potentially uh, you know, Army Cyber, but that's just a fraction of the requirement, right? And so if you look at ROTC, we have cadets who go to really great schools, have very good uh, skill sets. And so uh, what, we've, what we have to do is we have to connect to those students, make sure we're getting the best. And we worked out very hard with, uh, with Cadet Command. Now, if you look at our enlisted force, uh, we have a few that will transfer over from Intel or Signal or perhaps from uh, uh, a different career field, but those numbers are still relatively small. I think, uh, uh, again, when you look at the amount of people who are interested in coming into the branch, and we're a very small branch, right? We're the smallest branch of the Army. It's, it's about 3,000, and that's of all cohorts. So we 
we have to be very selective because we've got to get people who, who can uh, operate uh, in the environment that I described. In this joint, combined uh, environment, you know, comfortable operating with industry partners, with academia, et cetera. And so uh, if you look at our, our lines of effort for Army Cyber, you know, that talent management is, is the number one line of effort. Mm -hmm. Because technology is important, but we can generally find a solution to uh, our technology uh, challenges. You know, organizationally, authorities, we, I, I always go into an operation with the assumption that you know, authorities will follow if the, if the operation is important enough. But for us, it becomes the people, it becomes the culture that is where we have to spend, uh, frankly, a lot, of, uh, a lot of our effort. Now, if you look at retention, so recruiting is really not a problem. I think we get quality people, we have a, we have a good base to select from. Uh, I think we do a, f a fairly good job of actually selecting the uh, the right people. We're still working our way through uh, retention because I'm not sure a standard retention model is uh, is going to apply uh, uh, to us. And so we look at just the raw numbers. You know, in the aggregate, we meet our numbers, and we we do it. We meet them you know, very early in the uh, in the year. But when you disaggregate, you know that that overall number and you start looking at you know what what are those those work roles that are most important for us mm -hmm. well that's interactive uh you know online operator it's an exploitation uh, analyst it's a tool developer and then you put the microscope on just those three work roles then it becomes a, a different uh, story and so we have to work a lot harder uh to uh to retain those and look we, we're, we're like every other branch of We don't want to retain everyone. Mm -hmm. There's some that, uh, uh, frankly, it's, hey, thanks for your service, and then maybe you need to do something else. There are some that uh, no longer want to wear a uniform, but they're willing to work the mission, and we want to bring those over because we have, we have civilian positions you know, at all levels, and a lot of people don't realize that a lot of our operators are, uh, are civilians. So, uh, yeah. If I can have a soldier that comes in and then decides, look, after a tour, maybe two tours, uh, you know, I want a little more stability. Uh, maybe I have a, you know, a physical limitation that I've incurred uh, during my service, and I want to move over to the civilian side. We're very happy to do that. And then the other piece of this is if I have a military member who we've trained that decides that uh, they want to leave active duty, and they don't want to stay in the Army, they want to pursue an opportunity with the FBI or CIA or NSA, then I think, I think that's a, a net win mm -hmm. uh, for the, uh, the nation uh, overall. But as you can imagine, we, we watch this carefully. Uh, you know, we look at what the other services uh, are doing. Uh, I think we're holding our own uh, right now. We're going to come through a period where, if you think about you know, when we brought and started to build a force, now, now we're starting to understand, yeah, so yeah, we've only been around for about nine years now. Uh, we're starting to get that first cohort, you know, through their six-year enlistment, mm -hmm. and we're starting to get a better uh, feel for the numbers uh, for the officers uh, and, the, uh, and the, the enlisted. So the other personnel question that I have is, is related in some ways to recruiting and retention, but I think in the cyber domain it's particularly important, and it's the concept of professional military education and how 
we keep our, our cyber soldiers uh, abreast of the world that they need to operate in, given that it changes so quickly. Um, obviously, they still will do the things that soldiers do and, and have to you know, go to warrior leader course and those sorts of things. Yep. Um, but there is also that whole other broader skill set. So how does Army Cyber understand the requirement to educate and, and train their folks? So, so let me build upon yeah, how you ask that question, because I, I think it is important, yeah, we're soldiers first, that uh, yeah, our soldiers, you know, they're, they are going to take their PT tests. Uh, they're going to go to the range. Uh, they will uh, go through uh, kind of that standard, you know, if you're enlisted, you know, you know the warrior uh, leader course. If you're an officer, you're going to go to the basic course and, uh, and career course. And I think that's, that, that's very important because what we don't want to be uh, viewed at is uh, kind of this, this rogue you know, group of individuals that, that can't effectively integrate not only to that you know, kind of joint, uh, combined you know, interagency environment, but also can't integrate effectively into that uh, brigade combat team. Mm -hmm. Uh, that they're supporting, so so we, we have to be able to uh, to do that. Now, I think those are fairly uh, you know matter of course requirements. Uh, so the next level, I think it's it's in the cyber domain like you know every other domain. Uh, uh, you know, people have to if this is going to be more than just a job, if it's going to be you know, a profession, then uh, they're going to have to study. Uh, and part of it they'll, uh, they'll do on their own. Part of it uh, are the opportunities we'll provide with advanced civil schooling, uh, the ability, and I'll tell you, NSA has uh, one of the best training platforms uh, in the world. And, and all you need is access to NSA net, which you know, almost all of our soldiers have. So yeah, I, I take courses on NSA net, for instance, to maintain a certification, so so that's something that I expect uh, of our uh, our workforce. Uh, now, the, I think the bigger question is, you know, do you have to have a conventional degree? And I would argue, uh, no, you you don't. And that's what uh, you know, our partners in the commercial sector have found mm -hmm. is that sometimes yes, you know, certificates are good enough. Uh, you know, training that's focused on your work role. Uh, that uh, that may be good enough, and it doesn't require you know three or four year or six years uh, to uh, to train. So I think I think we've got to be a little more flexible. And so when we start to look at you know one one of the bedrocks for the officer corps, you have this four year degree, and maybe in the cyber domain, may, maybe that's not relevant mm -hmm. uh, for for a hundred percent of the force. Maybe your work experience is, uh, is more important. Maybe there's a series of certifications that become uh, more important. Now, if we look at, uh, we're one of the few services where we have a lot of officers that are actually on keyboard mm -hmm. because they have that, that talent. I think one of the things we have to take a look at is you know, how do you create space uh, for that portion of the workforce that is technologically uh, gifted and do they need to go to ILE? Do they need to go to the Army War College? I'd argue maybe what they need is training with industry. Uh, maybe what they need is we need to send them to, uh, to get a master's or a certification uh, uh, that directly supports their job requirement. 
And so maybe there's a role for this idea of limited duty officers uh, in Army cyber. And, and so those would be officers, I would argue, that could get promoted up to colonel, but they're not going to be an S3 or an XO. They're probably not going to be a, a company commander. doesn't mean that leadership's unimportant, but it won't be in the traditional you know, kind of CSL path. And so we have to create some mechanism, though, that allows them you know, to compete uh, you know, against their peers in their specialty because we're not going to promote you know, everyone to colonel. But in, in certain uh, work roles, you know, maybe that's what you're going to have is you're going to have a bunch of colonels, and the team leader could potentially be a major uh, or a lieutenant colonel, and you've got a bunch of operators that are colonels mm -hmm. and W-5s and sergeant majors. So I think it goes across uh, all work roles. And this is not to be different for different sake. This is actually uh, under this idea as the Army's unpacking its you know, talent management focus is you know, th this is the talent that's, uh, that's required. And so we're going to have to manage it, I think, in a, uh, a non-traditional way. And I'm, I'm actually uh, you know, pretty comfortable uh, with that idea. I've spent a lot of time around you know, uh, you know, NSA civilians, and so they have a tendency to promote based on your personal qualifications. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not based on kind of the traditional hierarchy that you, know, you have to supervise a certain amount of, of people to actually get promoted, that you could be uh, a world-class linguist, you could be a world-class analyst, and you may not supervise anyone, uh, but you'll promote up to uh, GS-15, GG-15, or even a, uh, a DICEL position, you know, a senior level, uh, kind of an SES position, based on your technical prowess not based on the number of people uh, you supervise. So I think that's going to be important uh, as, we, uh, as, we move, as we move forward. But bottom line is you know, I expect the workforce you know, to professionalize themselves, you know, make an investment, and I'll, I'll give them plenty of, plenty of opportunities. Now, the balance is education versus you know, time on keyboard, time in the, uh, the mission. And with a very small branch, that becomes a challenge. Now, that's my responsibility is to figure that out. But I can't have everyone at school, particularly for three or four years. I've, I have to have people, you know, uh, in the foxhole. And our our current population, we have about a third of it is uh, in the uh, you know, that TTHS account. So they're in training today. And so when you have a third of your force that's in training, then you're only filling uh, three quarters of your requirements. And one of the things that uh, that we all have come to understand over the last couple of years is requirements are growing exponentially. The branch uh, hasn't. So I think that's a good segue. You mentioned a couple times that you know Army Cyber has really only existed for nine, ten years about. And in those nine years, the world has changed enormously. Right? There's been a lot of change, especially in, in domains that are important to uh, cyber operations. I'm curious, looking forward, what do you see as the major challenges and opportunities for Army Cyber given AI and quantum computing and all the sort of technical things that seem like they're on the horizon? So, so I, I'll start with where I normally start, which is defense. So where I'm concerned is if you think about uh, current encryption is 
uh, how vulnerable it will be current encryption capabilities to quantum computing. So if something's very important to us, uh, we're going to have to keep very close track of that because I'm assuming the adversary is collecting on us like we collect on the adversary. And once you, you know, achieve that point where you can break that encryption using quantum computing or near quantum computing, uh, then there are certain things that are very important to you that will be uh, placed at risk. So, so that becomes uh, very important. But I also look at that and I say, you know, my ability to uh, really sense, understand, decide, act, and assess uh, autonomously uh, is going to be enabled by quantum computing and artificial intelligence. And so I think that's where we're going to have to be. I look at a lot of the operations we conduct today, they're very manpower intensive. They take a lot of time. So if you go back to this idea that, that we have this need for speed uh, to do what I described, you know, sense, understand, decide, uh, act, and assess, then I, sometimes I want to be able to do that without human intervention because I, I can't stop uh, to assess you know, every threat that's, uh, that's thrown against us. Mm -hmm. I have to have networks that, frankly, uh, can identify threat uh, and self-heal, so that's you know, autonomous. You know, send the report up, we can review it at the end of the day or the end of the week, but uh, yeah, I, I can't, I am not going to be able to compete uh, using current practices. Uh, and if my workforce is not going to get significantly, you know, exponentially uh, larger, uh, and I'm not even sure you could, you could scale it uh, to, uh, to operate in a, a quantum computing environment you know, with, with very good machine learning and, uh, and AI capabilities, uh, that's, that's going to be uh, key to our success. All right, sir. That seems like a good place to stop. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again.